You're listening to episode 29 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Five years before Jonathan Demme brought us The Silence of the Lambs, Michael Mann would be the first to bring Hannibal Lecter off the page and onto the big screen. Adapted from Thomas Harris's novel Red Dragon, the first in his Hannibal series, Manhunter is a completely different beast to The Silence of the Lambs and the films that would follow. Gone are the gothic inflections and the grand guignol of Demme's masterpiece, and in are the icy cool modernist neo-noir expressionism of Man's Manhunter. So stick with us as we discuss this cult film that has only grown in stature over the years and, unavoidably, comb over the comparisons between Manhunter and Brett Ratner's 2002 adaptation Red Dragon. Well, it's been a nice little summer holiday, a couple of weeks off, but we are now, I think, officially back. Wait there, Wayne. <laughs> we have released Body Double. We have. We have released Safe. Also, yes. So have we not been back for two <laughs> weeks already, Wayne? Well, in a sense, we have, yes. Explain to Wayne. How is that in a sense? <laughs> well, we had a few episodes, we'll say, in the tap. In the can, Wayne. Yeah, Let, let's be very filmic yes, here. Yes, in the, we had a few episodes in the can. We'd recorded them, they were edited, they were ready to go, and then when August rolled around, we decided... Let's take a bit of a break. Go away for the summer. You were going away somewhere. I was going away somewhere. So yeah, we just kind of took August off. But like we say, a few episodes were already in the can and ready to go. Because I think we had a, we had a good role there. I think we was it what twenty six ish episodes without yeah. a gap from yeah from January right up to the end of July. The end of January. Yeah, mm. that, that's a that's a good role. Not so bad, I think. Week in week out, we managed to be consistent anyway. <laughs> Consistently brilliant, Wayne. That's how I like to say it. Consistently brilliant. Consistently epic. But yes, but uh, we're back now. Mildly fantastic. <laughs> for you, for those of you out there who find our episodes mildly riveting, yeah, we're uh, we're back to we're back to recording brand new episode now. Like we say, a um, couple will be coming soon. But this is us recording a brand new episode after our little hiatus. So where were you, Wayne? Where were you on this hiatus? Well, uh, well, for a few weeks. Just around my home, but then uh, my fiance and I we went off to Turkey. Turkey, because we had a few. Ooh, we had fancy. A, we had a thank you. We had a week in Turkey, Fethiye, in the west of Turkey on the Med. And we is that a food? What? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Really good food there, by oh, the way. Yeah, if anyone's interested, so. yeah. And then we took a day trip over to Rhodes because it's like the closest Greek island, I think, to there anyway. And yeah, so we spent the day in Rhodes. How was the ferry trip? But it was eventful. Somewhat uncomfortable. Uncomfortable? Yes. Uh, so Were you a bit rocky on the ferry, Wayne? A little bit. I'm not usually not so bad unless it's very shaky. Rachel, a uh, bit ill, we'll say. Who's Rachel, Wayne? That's my fiancé. Let's the audience <laughs> know. Just the other Who's this random Rachel? This woman I took along. That's uh, Rachel's my fiancé. She came along, didn't do so well. She's usually not so bad, but it was quite you know, quite up and down. And it was a two-plus-hour boat trip. Two-hour-plus? Yes. From Turkey to Greece? I think that might be the longest boat trip I've ever taken, actually. Probably, nice ferry, yeah. nice ferry. I wasn't so bad. I mean, like, the Channel Ferry is like an hour and a half now. Because you made a nice little Twitter post there in yes. Greece. Yes, because I didn't even realise, like, the Guns of Navarone, yeah, that was filmed. Uh, Mandraki Bay, I believe. Mandraki Bay. Around the north coast of Rhodes. Right. So got some photos there and uh, comparison ones. So they're up on our Twitter and our Instagram. If so they were direct comparison shots, were they? Ruff- roughly, roughly. Roughly. There's a building yes. that's there. Some features have changed, but there's a building there which is exactly the same building as you see in the film. Guns of Navarone? Fan? Hmm? 
It's a pretty good film from, you know what what? I, from what I remember. Hmm? Never seen it. You've never actually never seen, seen, it? seen it? Very much one of those dad movies, the kind of where eagles dare, Kelly's heroes kind of Does thing. Does Papa Wayne like the film? Uh, my dad loves it. He does. Of course, of course he does, yeah. Is that why you were saying it's a dad film? Yes, it is very much a dad film. And right. where did you go on your trip? Because you had a trip I was well. visiting family in London, mm-hmm. which is where those Twitter posts came of Marion Park and down the South Bank in London. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing some comparison shots down the South Bank for and, and Covent Garden for Hitchcock's Frenzy, his last film in the UK. And Marion Park, which I was doing some comparison shots for Antonioni's blow up. Yeah, were you surprised by how much like the areas had changed? Because you could definitely see in the photos it was the same place, but quite a few factors had changed since. South Bank was much alike. Yeah, did Covent it. Garden was very different, and Marion Park was, you know, from the blow up film was, you know, very very like the film. Just the foliage had grown a bit. Mm. Yeah. So again, anybody who's seen the film would recognise that area. I instantly. think so. Yes. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. I hope. I, ho- I hope. <laughs> I hope our you know our followers enjoyed those yes, little and, yeah. de- little detours while we're away. Yeah, and thank you, for, uh, followers, by the way, for sticking with us because folk have still been listening to the podcast throughout August and commenting and such on our Twitter and Instagram. So thank you very much. We also had quite a lot more Instagram followers over August. Yeah, how did that happen? It was a lot of like small film companies or like film production companies that followed us on Instagram. Hoorah! <laughs> Seriously, we appreciate all the support. Thank you, everybody. And like you say, uh, we're back and we're getting into the groove once again. Well, I think our (laughs) synopsis told the story there, Wayne, because which film is it? We're heading back to Mm. 1986. The 80s. Michael Mann. Michael Mann's Manhunter. Manhunter. Definitely not Red Dragon, Wayne. Definitely not Red Red Dragon. Dragon. How much do you think, we want to bet, that they they got Michael Mann to do this because of his surname? Michael Manhunter. That's a bad pun, Wayne. <laughs> Even for you, that's a terrible Look, pun. Look, it's been a while since I got to make bad puns on here. Yes, it, it's been a... Uh, unless you weren't listening, it's a, it's a month since we've recorded. I've been banking up all of my bad puns. But like you say, 1980s, 1986? 86. 1986, written and directed by Michael Mann, and this is... Michael Mann himself? M- Manhunter. The first adaptation of Tom Harris's... Uh, Thomas Harris, the, yes. His Silence of the Lambs series. I'd say Hannibal, actually. Hannibal series, yes. Comes uh, at a good time, because you know what came in the post the other day, Wayne? I'm guessing it was one of the Sounds of the Lambs films? No. Hannibal Rising? No. What was it? Well, stop guessing, please. <laughs> okay, My- Michael Mann's Heat 2, the novel. Oh, right. Oh, Michael Mann's Heat 2. Oh. I've never read it yet, so if anybody's read that mm-hmm. so far, or are in the process of reading it, please let me know. Yeah, but if it could be a while to get around to reading it. Yes, well, if you look at my bookcase, all the stuff I've got to get through. <laughs> but we I'm talk trying about, not to. You talk about Michael Mann, think of some of his most famous films. A very yes. diverse filmography, because you've got things like Last of the Mohicans. Right. We have Heat, right. generally regarded as his magnum opus. I've heard a lot of people say that. You know what? It's mm. never been God-tier for me. No. I like it a lot. Never been a top tier film for no, me. No, I'm exactly. The I same. would like to revisit it because it has been several years, and I bought the film. You know, I, I'm going to say peer pressure here, Wayne. Yeah. I bought the book on peer pressure. Okay. So I'm looking forward to reading that. I do like Heat. It's a very good film. Very good film. Yes. Has been a few years since I've seen it, so it, you know, the remnants of it are kind of drifting out of the memory. So I'm still looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. But as I said. It's never been God tier for me. No, me what neither. What about you? Me neither. No, I liked it. I think I could maybe appreciate it more if I went back to it. But I did like it. Um, the very dynamic directorial style, right? Which is something I think we'll be talking about quite a lot in this one. The very distinct visual style he has. Well, Michael Mann is often accused now and again of style over substance. Mm-hmm. 
Well, there is a bit of that, Wayne. There well, is a bit of that. Well, look, not long ago, we talked about Body Double. And we made copious references to how visual a film that was, how yes. the visuals tell the story, the kind of film you could watch with the sound off and you would still pick up a lot of stuff. Right. I think it's kind of the similar case here. Although Wait. you did mention at one point, you said this film is very visual. You said to its benefit and to its ill. So I did I, think that. So I do think we're going to get we're going to get into things did like. Did you that. agree there? I can understand why you would say we're going that. towards that. We will get to this. Yes. Don't I, don't, don't, don't don't you know mm-hmm. push the buttons too, <laughs> too early. Don't don't blow the load already. Well, you said it. <laughs> we'll get in. You already it. disturbed me with some of your quotes on Body Devil. So. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just uh, provoking conversation here. Yeah, yeah. You provocateur. Mm. But uh, it took him three years to write the script. Apparently, uh, Thomas Harris is a kind of famously private author. And He's I quite wonder, reclusive. He is quite reclusive. I wonder why it took him so long to actually get round to adapting. Do you think, do you think Thomas Harris um, identifies with Hannibal? Possibly, in a sense. Maybe. Well, what are you saying that there's maybe someone he's known in his life, or him himself? Maybe. Who's a prototype for well, Hannibal Lecter? That's maybe why Thomas is hiding away, Wayne. <laughs> he maybe doesn't want to be found here. He's just avoiding suspicion. Yes. Yes. But the book is called Red Dragon itself. So. 1981. I'll explain. Yes. Red Dragon. Yes. One of our favourites, I'm going to say, mainly for Deer Hunter, Michael Cimino. Cimino, yeah. He made a film round about this time. I think it was a year prior, called Year of the Dragon. It was 1985. Starring the tremendous, at least in the 80s, Mickey Rourke. So that film tanked. Yes. You know what, Wayne? Yeah. That film had dragon in the title. It did have dragon in you the know, title. Producers aren't the most savvy of people. <laughs> so they thought So they thought Red Dragon was going to tank also because it had, you know, dragon in the title. Yeah, and the other reason was because, I believe this was actually came right from Dino De Laurentiis. He was worried that because of Bruce Lee, I guess, even though Bruce Lee was more than 10 years dead at this point, they were worried that people would mistake it for a kung fu film because the word dragon, I guess, was still being associated with martial arts movies. Yeah. So I think most people in this production, Michael Mann, William Peterson, the star of this film, they pretty much, everybody thinks the title Manhunter is a little hokey, don't they? Yeah, I think Brian Cox said it. I think even Brian Cox said it was cheesy. Do you think? Well, sort of Manhunter. Does that make it sound more generic? Generic, yeah. Because I'd say... Though, on the flip side, let's play devil's advocate here. Right. Manhunter, it's more explicit in the title. You mm. kind of know what you're getting into. Yeah. Red Dragon, yeah, I mean, that could be anything, right? Could be quite vague. Quite vague. Yeah, well, if you call it Manhunter, that's for, like, from the perspective of the protagonist. Red Dragon from the antagonist. Right. So like, depending on what you call it, does it go this way and that? Do you have a preference? What? I like the name Manhunter. I like them. I mean, both titles are good for me. I don't have a preference either way. Pick one. Look, you have to right. pick one in this society way. Oh man, the pressure! Right, yeah. No, I'll go with Manhunter. You like? I, I like the term Manhunter. You like the term Manhunter? That's good. Yeah. Someone who was approached to direct, interestingly, David Lynch. David Lynch, and as we were saying, Wayne, as David Lynch, he was an early consideration for director, but coincidentally, Wayne. Here's a little factoid for all you listeners. Mm. In a six de- six degrees of separation type way, Anthony Hopkins would later go on to portray Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Mm. And Hannibal and Red Dragon. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. But in Six Degrees of Separation, Hopkins got that part because he was in David Lynch's The Elephant, Elephant Man. Man. Yeah. Yeah. A totally different role. Interesting how that because that was what Elephant Man nineteen eighty? Early 80s, yeah. So, yeah, 11 years later and it paid off. Yeah. Interestingly, I found that David Lynch, uh, he called the story of Manhunter violent and completely degenerate. 
Well, Dave, you're fucking violent and degenerate. <laughs> and then, what interestingly, the movie you went on to make instead, Blue Velvet. Love that. I, I, I love Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet is a great movie. Do you yeah. like Blue Velvet? Yeah, I do. It's fantastic. I would love to show you, because I know you've not seen it, Lost Highway. Yes. It's getting it. a 4K restoration by the Criterion Collection very soon. Well, when it comes around, it will be it'll be back in vogue, so maybe we'll cover we, it. We maybe cover it. I think we'll cover it. I'd then, like yes. to cover it. Yes, good idea. Do you know what? It's yes. almost as confusing, or more confusing, than Mulholland Drive. Excellent. Well, Mulholland Drive wasn't confusing at all. No? <laughs> it was baffling. Yeah, it was baffling. Yeah. But, uh, with David A clusterfuck. Le- yeah, but with David Lynch, I think he was still under cre- uh, contract with De Laurentiis, because he'd not long made Dune. Do you yeah. think he was hesitant to do another studio film? I've never seen Dune. I've I seen one version Was it any it. good? I think the version I watched, a friend showed it to me, I think it was the version which had... You know when you watch a DVD and you have deleted scenes? Yes. I think this was Dune with all of the deleted scenes restored, and it made me think there's a reason these scenes were deleted. It's were they bad? very long. It's very incoherent. I, I had no idea. I think I stopped watching it How did it compare to the newer Dune? The new Dune. The Dent. Dennis Vanille. Uh, Dennis Villeneuve. I love the new one, actually. You I loved really, it. I really liked the new one, yes. Love? I think it was, maybe not love, but I very much enjoyed you it. You strongly liked. I strongly liked. They're good. I strongly liked. That's bad English. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever used that. I is, strongly, that is that bad English there? Is that I bad grammar? I strongly like you. Yes, but I, I, I see where you come from. But yeah, but he didn't make this. He made Blue Velvet and Michael Mann went on to make Manhunter. So yeah, Manhunter budget, 15 million. Mm-hmm. And you know how we usually go on about these films. There's certain films in, you know, we've covered and there's certain films down the line that they're almost appreciated later on. You could almost call them a cult film. A cult films, Well, yes. 15 million budget only brought back 8.5 mil. Mm, if my maths is right, that means the movie had a loss. Do you know why, <laughs> though? I have actually got a quote from, you know, Hannibal himself, Brian Cox. Do you mm. know why one of the reasons this film tanked the box office was? Tell me. Here's a quote from Brian, Brian Cox. He says, You know, the film got its cult status very early on, really by default, because, basically, producer Dino De Laurentiis went bust and couldn't afford to make any more prints. There were very few prints of it around initially, and, of course, it didn't do very well. So because he couldn't afford to keep making prints, it only played in a select amount of cinemas. So it didn't get a wide enough release. Exactly. So it wasn't that it was unpopular, it was just difficult to track down and watch. That could be retrograde, Wayne. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, it, but it, we, we don't know. We, we know it failed for whatever reason. That's the reason Brian Cox has put forth. Yes, I suppose so. Maybe not too radical at the time. Maybe it was just, right. uh, again, going bust. That's one of those things. It's not the film's fault. It's studio mismanagement or whatever. But it's a shame that great films like this can be missed, not do very well because yep. of factors like that. So, it's a very Michael Mann film. Because mm. Michael Mann obviously was coming off Thief. Thief, yes. It's a pretty great film. Have you seen Thief? I've not seen Thief, actually. It's very stylized. It's very criminal. It's very meticulous in its, you know, its attention to detail. Yeah. The Keep, which was a horror film. I've never seen this, but that was supposed to be quite a bizarre and out there film, especially for Michael Mann, mm. which is completely different from the rest of his catalogue. Yeah. Then, oh, Wayne. <laughs> Michael Mann. Yes. I am sorry, Michael Mann. You are to blame for some of the atrocious 80s fashion because he was the executive producer of the TV show Miami Vice. Oh, Miami Vice. Oh, you're referring to the um, the Hawaiian shirts. It wasn't just the Hawaiian shirts, Wayne. It was the shoes without socks. That's bad enough. 
I thought it was just something that like famous drug dealers did with the shoes without socks. Well, it, it took in, <laughs> it, it was in the milieu of the Miami drug land, so oh, they were so undercover. You see, so maybe okay, they then. were a bit more flamboyant than the average cop. So that's maybe what the reason. Did you is. ever see this TV show, Miami? I've Vice? not. I've not. I've seen bits of the film. You have never seen it. No, I've not actually. Bits of the bits of the film. Never seen the TV show. So you've never grew to hate Michael Mann. No, I have not grown to hate Michael Mann. Yeah. He's one of those directors that I don't even have the strongest opinion of. I like watching his films, but it's not like, oh man, I'm going to watch a Michael Mann film. Quick question, quick fire, rapid question. Mm-hmm. Favourite Michael Mann film? On the spot. Ten seconds. Nine, eight, Last seven. of the Mohicans, I think. Oh, fuck you. Really? <laughs> Last of the Mohicans? Was, was that a bizarre choice? Yes. I was, yeah. That was terrible. Well, either that or this, actually. It would have been either that oh. or this. Because things like Ali, uh, Ali was kind of strange. Yeah. I didn't think much of Ali. I remember finding Public Enemies just kind of boring. I, I didn't actually mind Public the Enemies. John, uh, John Dillinger one, yeah. But something like that, yeah, it would be either this or Last of the Mohicans, I Wait, think. What about, <laughs> what about Collateral? What? Oh, he did Collateral? Yes. Oh, man. Again, so long since that I've seen it. That was a great Collateral. film. With uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx, yeah. Sorry. Too long since I've seen that one. Can't really remember hey, very well. <laughs> Collateral and um, Heat. Mm-hmm. They, but they're, they both surpass, I think, the choices you've picked. Oh, excellent. So, man, we've just got back and already. I'm already in the trenches, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already being beaten down. This is what this, this is what sunstroke does to you people. <laughs> so we're gonna have to go on another break, everybody. Okay, yeah. so can we talk about the kind of principal players in this film? We've got You tell me. Uh, we've got William Peterson, right. we have Brian Cox, and we have Tom Noonan. Tom from Noonan? A, from a sounds of it, they did pretty meticulous research right. uh, to put this because like I say, Mann spent three years writing the script. Peterson spent time with Chicago PD, right. he actually read real case files. Kind of ironic considering his most famous role arguably in CSI. As oh, a, oh, fuck you, Wade. As a forensic investigator. I think we're going to argue a lot in this episode. <laughs> Did Excellent. you never see To Live and Die in LA? No, I didn't see To Live and Die in LA. The Friedkin film. The, the Friedkin film. I've heard the of William it, but I've Friedkin not seen film it. With Willem Dafoe is, is the, the villain. Also, Always a good choice. One of the greatest chase, fil- uh, chase sequences in 80s cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it rivals... Yeah, I was gonna say, maybe gonna, a little hyperbole here, but it's, it's almost rivaling Bullet. Oh, for the chase sequence. I thought you were going to say French Connection because we're talking Friedkin. That is another excellent chase scene. You just watched Bullet the other day. I did just watch it, yes. Yes. It's absolutely fantastic, that, yes. that chase scene. It's raw, gritty, very little music in the background. One car loses about five hubcaps despite only having four wheels. Oh, well. <laughs> but we'll Skills. Gloss over that. Skills, way. Yeah, man, but it's iconic as hell. I'm assuming Steve McQueen said a lot. But, yeah, he said about as much as McQueen. I hope, I hope he wasn't paid by the words. Or he well, made shit money for that film. Well, have you saw his car collection or did his previous car collection? Dude, he had all of the cars, man. Yeah, I don't think he was getting paid by the no, words. He was Hollywood petrol head elite. But you forgot yeah. also, Wayne, in this film, Jack Crawford. Jack Crawford, yes. Played uh, by? Dennis Farina. Great tash. Yes. Great moustache. He, like, with that kind of tash, you not think he was born to play authority figures, policemen? Do you know why, he usually Do you know why, though, Wayne? Why? He was 16 or 18 years in the Chicago Police Department. He actually was. Prior to being an actor. Do you think well, that's where the moustache just sprouted from? He became a cop and it just appeared one day. I think we have to set the scene here, Wayne. <laughs> Dennis Farina is maybe not a household name. So who is... Dennis Farina was the host of Unsolved Mysteries. Right. He was in Get Shorty. Yes. He was in... Snatch as well. Was he in Snatch? He was in Snatch, yeah. He was the one of the, the lead like diamond, the guy trying to buy the diamonds. And for my money... Very naturalistic actor. He was a very naturalistic actor. He brings a th- an authenticity, which I think he's bringing from his prior, you know, dealings in the underworld. He's a cop, so mm-hmm. I'm sure he saw some grittiness. I could believe him in this role. Again, and if you told me he worked as a cop, which he did, 
I would believe that totally. I just told you. So, exactly. <laughs> I just bloody told you. Just a few weeks ago. We've been on holiday, remember? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Brian, Cox, Brian Cox also. Interestingly, I was reading about this. Uh, Cox said he felt he was cast because, he says, characters who are a bit, little bit nasty are best played by Europeans. Because you have that thing in American movies where the villain is usually British or Russian, for example. It's just that they've got those accents. Yes. They'll play the bad guys because audiences will watch and think, they don't sound like me, therefore I shouldn't like them. You say Americans, Wayne, mm-hmm. but, you know, Bond's partial to a European villain. Mm-hmm. He, oh, yeah, he is, yes. actually. Yeah. Good, good point, actually. You know, <laughs> as long as they have an accent, they're bad. How dare you destroy my accent in <laughs> yes. one simple argument. Yeah, and also Tom Noonan as well. Oh, Tom. Tom Noonan. Who was Tom in? Tom, we've, we've, we've covered Tom Noonan. Uh, yes, we had him in Anomalisa. Anomalisa. Uh, do you know who he played in that movie? Pretty much everybody. Everybody. <laughs> If you remember our normally set episode, he played all the characters aside from two of them, I believe it was. It was two. Uh, he was a hard-working man. I'm assuming it wasn't the female role. Mm. No, it was not the female. That was uh, yes. Jennifer Jason Lee. It was, mm. yes. But Tom, uh, he was in this film as well. A lot of work. This was a very difficult film because he said he bulked up, because he plays the villain here, he bulked up to physically intimidate. And he's already six foot five. He's at least that, yeah. So he's, already he's a big fella. He's already intimidating presence, and he says he was doing 50 push-ups between takes, and he said, and there were a lot of takes. I don't know. Did you see the bulky bodiness? Not so much, no. no. I thought it was mostly the height that made him yes, the imposing was, character that he which was. Which, he, he, you know, he went into this role with the height. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yes, he, he, brought the, he, he brought the height to the role. Yeah. Like. He didn't go for the personal trailer to work on yes. his height. Yeah, right enough. But uh, he did lots of work. Peterson did work. Brian Cox did work. By the sounds of it, Dennis Farina, already natural to this. And what, and what is Brian Cox? My gosh. He is, I believe, Dr. Hannibal Lector. That's, because in this film, this is the only adaptation where his surname has a K in it. Yeah, but what was that? Is that a rights issue? It, it was almost like, it wasn't like a, a typo or something. You don't think like Michael typed that into the script and thought, well, I can't change it now because I'm on a typewriter. Interestingly, you know how I was going all, you know, six degrees of separation with you before? Yeah. Dino De, La, Dino De Laurentiis, the producer. What does it tie in for the rest of his films? Do you know? No. He did not produce Silence of the Lambs, but he produced all the other Hannibal films after that. He produced Red Dragon. He produced Hannibal. He did, because yes. I watched Red Dragon not so long ago. I remember his name popping up, and I thought, was he still, because Red Dragon 2002, I thought, was Dino still producing at this point? We will get to our comparisons, because there's a lot of comparisons to yes. be made. Be ready for the, yes, be ready for comparisons. Oh, I'm sure there's a segment there, Wayne. <laughs> I'm sure there's a segment there. Oh, foreshadowing. Hey, it's Fuck been a long you. time since we got We've to say that. that yes. Come on, we got to say that. Yeah, but not to the audience. Not to the audience. Oh, I'm sorry, everybody. Right. Okay, but we're talking about this movie, how meticulous it was. Do you know uh, a, a forensic criminologist called Brent E. Turvey? He's an author as well. Right. He said because of the preparation that went into this film, he called it, and I quote, one of the most competent blends of cutting-edge forensic science and criminal profiling at the time. You know, I believe that because... Michael Mann films, whether it's he, as we've explained, Thief, he always brings this meticulous attention to detail, doesn't he? And there's a scene in this film, Manhunter, where there's an epiphany and they're doing research in a lab, mm. fingerprints, etc. And the attention to detail is unsurpassable. Very meticulous. Yes. You, you get the sense that he's not a flippant kind of director. No. Here. He's very particular about all the details. And that kind of obsessive, almost like kind of Stanley Kubrick manner. And do you know how I was mentioned I just got the novel Heat 2? Yes. Well, one review, 
to its detriment, Wayne, to its, <laughs> to its detriment, oh dear. was like, do we need to know the title of every damn gun? Yes. Can you not just say he had a machine gun? Do we have to know the brand, the make, the ammo? We need to be specific on yes. this. That's what Michael Mann brings. Mm-hmm. So what exactly does Michael Mann bring to Manhunter then? Well, Wayne, I'll tell you, I've seen several now, or pretty much all of the Hannibal films, and what differentiates Michael Mann's Hannibal film to the others is a sense or a strong sense of aesthetics because this film looks nothing at all like any other Hannibal film you will see none even the lighting the lighting is completely different it's very much akin to as we were mentioned before heat he's very much using I don't know why this is a trademark of Michael Mann there's a very evident color scheme of blues there's a lot of blues are evidenced and they're used in this film in familial settings to represent a a warmth a homeliness that's the idea Mm. do you think it's weird using the color blue because when you think of blue you think of yes calming but you also think of it as being quite a cold color but here very intense blues are used see i i actually agree with you the purpose of using the blue color scheme when it's a family setting is supposed to represent the comfort as i mentioned Mm -hmm. but to me it's too it's too much of an icy blue would you say it is it's very cool steely uh, almost off-handed. Yeah, almost blue velvety when you look in the movie, like on the DVD case and stuff. Yeah, no, it's, it's almost blue velvet. <laughs> kind of almost like a sharp, like a like a sharp blue. And to the point, I was thinking, this is weird. It's almost like the color grade is off. Yeah, but you know, we open this film from the killer's point of view. Remember, this is '86, so the opening of this film to me is representing. It's got that slash. There's almost a slasher aesthetic to some of this film. Yeah, first per- first person camera. First person camera. It was almost, and I think, and I do wonder, a more recent film, a tremendous film in my eyes, a modern classic, Nightcrawler. Hmm. It was very rep- reminiscent of some of Jake Gyllenhaal's scenes where he would go through crime scenes with his camcorder. And we open this film with the killer going through one of his victims' house with the camcorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also we have to, don't forget, it begins with a musical score. Because yes. did you not find that also the score in this movie was very distinct? Strange in places, but very distinct. Right, well the music was by Michelle Rubini and the Reds. Okay, we keep saying this, Wayne, but this is another <laughs> this is another motif of Michael Mann's is the incorporation of popular music yeah. into his films. Wayne, I think you quoted me, or I may have said, the Michael Mann is both the strength of this film yeah. and the detriment of this film. I did quote you saying that. You did quote me saying <laughs> that. And I think when it comes to the music... Apart from the Iron Butterfly song towards the end, yeah. a lot of their music in this film does not fit. It doesn't. It's I didn't think it fit. The best way, the best word I can think of is incongruous. It almost feels like, have you ever been watching a film or a TV show and a song plays and you think, this feels like it belongs in a completely different project. It's like it was dropped in here by accident. It feels intrusive. There are some weird things. But interestingly, the Iron Butterfly, there is kind of a connection. In a Garda La Vida. In a Garda La Vida. Great yeah. song. Yeah, <laughs> cool song. Was um, it 71 or 72? It was roughly that year. Run it then. Yeah. Regarded as one of the first hard rock songs, so it's very important. Yes. Again, we'll, we'll get to that. But we like I say, with the score, kind of similar to what we spoke about recently, uh, Safe. Yeah. Uh, and also Mulholland Drive, that very steadily rising... 
very kind of calm, contemplative, haunting kind of score. Again, it's at night. The killer is stalking around this, presumably the intended victim's house. Very much the intended yes, victim's house. With this war score, and it's at night. And yeah, this bizarre kind of score that's following it through. Yeah, well, what do you think of the original score? Because the original score by Michelle Rubini and the Reds, it, it's very much, you know, in the 80s, a big you know, group that would score soundtrack films was Tangerine Dream. Yeah. They would do Sorcerer. And I think they would even do more mainstream fare, for example, like Risky Business. Okay. And they had this, you know, this very synth-heavy, synth dreamlike score. And I think this is what Michelle Rubini was channeling in this film. Yeah, when I heard it, it's like, yes, this is very heavily synth. It's almost sets it in the 80s, doesn't it? Sets it in that decade. Big synth instruments. So you you set us up, Wayne. You you give us a an overview. So as we said, this film stars William Peterson of To Live and Die in LA. To Live and Die in LA. <laughs> Thank you for remembering me. That's the one you brought up earlier. Yes, I know. Uh, is a CSI. I know him mostly because my family used to love watching CSI, so that's where I'm mostly. But he plays from. Will Graham, who is also one of the stars of the TV show Hannibal. Yes. Because this predates Silence of the Lambs. Let's let's get that into people's heads. So clearly mm. Starling is not part of this story. No. So William Peterson, Will Graham, you set us up. Who is he? Who is he as a character? Well, as we see very quickly, we're with him uh, on a beach, him and this other guy. Yes. He looks like he's enjoying his life. He's relaxing. He's got a cigarette. He's got a beer. It transpires that he was a former FBI agent. Right. I would say would, he, he's an FBI profiler. Yes. Right. You could say almost like a forensic detective. Which, which I think is very important to this story. Crucial. Crucial. Crucial to this story. Right. You, Clearly, he was very good. Because we're getting one of these scenarios now. You used to see it a lot in especially action films where someone had to come back and ask, you're the best, we need you to come back for one yes. last job thing. And what do you think of the directing in the scene? It was quite interesting how him and uh, Will Dennis Graham and Dennis Farina, yes, who plays uh, Jack Crawford. Jack Crawford, who who is a, actually, I think, in all... Is he in all the Hannibal films? He's definitely in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, Jack Crawford is. I th yes. think he appears in... I can't. Yeah, I think he does appear in, in pretty much all of them. Cause he's Just the, say yes. Somebody will correct us anyway. <laughs> yes. Put it in the comments. Yeah. Yes. Is it, uh, F, he's the lead of the F, head of the yeah, FBI. Yeah. yeah, they're sat on this log and we're seeing them. They're both facing different directions. As duality is an important part of this film. The aesthetic really plays into that as well, like using the different colours to represent the different characters. Do you know how I was saying in this film how blue represents the family? Yes. Well, when you know that scene you were on about at the start where William Will Graham is in conversation with Jack Crawford and Jack Crawford is bringing him back yes. into into the police life. Well, that shot starts, doesn't it? It's blue. Solid blue sky. And it tilts down and we realise it's a sky and we tilt down onto Will Graham and Jack Crawford and they're by the sea and there's this very heavily thematic presence in this film of nature. Would you say that? It's, mm. it's weird and yeah. I don't know exactly what it's intending. Because the killer... Uh, his MO is basically he starts off kind of stalking the yeah. families. So there's a lot of time in uh, gardens. We talk about big yards. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of nature. Even afterwards, they actually talk about animals afterwards. So yeah, it's like a heavy nature presence. It even plays into something the killer does as well. So yeah, it's like it does really uh, weave its way into the storyline. Because... Will Graham is a very tortured character, isn't yes. he? Physically and mentally. Physically and mentally. And... He's reluctantly brought back on 
back on side to the FBI to look into this case because what has been happening is there's this killer around. He's referenced in the press as the Tooth Fairy. Yes. He's essentially going to families' houses. He's casing these family houses Mm -hmm. and he's viewing their videotapes, isn't he? Yes. And by very much viewing them and becoming them, there's this very word what's referenced in this film a lot is the becoming. Yes. Which is weirdly, did you notice, it was, you could almost say it thematically ties in with Silence of the Lambs, both novel and, Mm. you know, both the novel and the films, because in Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill is, in a sense, becoming. He's transforming into something else. Yeah, and one of the important visuals is the moth becoming the the metamorphosis. Yes. Exactly, yes. Becoming is important. So important, in fact, there's a scene where we see the word becoming written out, and it's spelt with a capital B for no reason. It's not the beginning of the sentence, but it's spelt with a capital B. It's that important way. It has to be stated. Mm. Did you expect it all to be in caps lock? I kind of did, actually, yeah. I thought it would be becoming in big letters, but no, it's just to be. And I had to double check. No, it's not at the start of a sentence. So like I say, it's one of the most important themes of this movie is the becoming. But as we said, we're stating the blue of the, the you know, the family role. Very stark contrast because when we meet Hannibal Lecter or when we are in an official space, very sterile. Yes. Very overlit, you could say, because this film is in direct contrast to Silence Alarms. And we'll reference that a lot because the... Science Slams is the pinnacle of Hannibal films. I think we both agree, would you say? Basically, For yes. us, anyway. Yeah, I would say Other people yes. have their own opinions. But when we're introduced to Hannibal Lecter in Science Slams, he's already looking at us. He's standing at a still. He's waiting for Clarice to enter. Mm-hmm. In this film, when we're introduced to Hannibal Lecter, he is purposely looking away from the camera. And he's very overlit. Yes. He's very un- unoperatic. Because Anthony Hopkins... You know, in contradiction to Brian Cox, who plays Hannibal in this film, very, two very different performances. Very much, yeah. In fact, interestingly, the introduction to uh, Hannibal Lecter in this film, like you say, white cell, blank. Looking away s- from us. Sterile. You think of uh, Hannibal in Silence of the Lambs. There was dark walls. There was pictures all over the walls. But here, he's lying on, his, uh, on the bed in his cell, yes. facing away from the camera, which, interesting was how he auditioned, because... Michael Mann said, we have to hear your voice. Because right. so much of Hannibal is just in the words he says, because he's in the cell the whole film, so he has no choice but to intimidate through his voice. One of the inspirations for Brian Cox in this Hannibal, there's several, but I'm going to zone in on this specific one. When Brian Cox was trying to get a flavour of how to play Hannibal, Michael Mann said, look, Hannibal is a public school boy. Yeah. And Brian Cox was like, you know, I don't know any public school boys. <laughs> but he realized on inspection, Wayne, he did. Yeah. And <laughs> it was his <laughs> that influence, Wayne. Yeah. Was his son Michael. Was his son Michael. Do you think Michael watched this movie? And do you think Brian Cox told his son that? Do you think his son liked that? Right. Here's a weird thing. He says, he kept saying, he's got this sense of entitlement. He's got a thing about entitlement. Brian didn't know any public school boys, so he used his son Alan as an example. And Brian Cox, to this day, Wade, to this day, keeps saying every time he sees his portrayal of Hannibal, he pictures his son Michael. Mm. Should we be worried about Michael? But I think so, because <laughs> he's an actor as well, I believe, Michael. Is he? Mike, yeah, uh, his son, I think all of his kids have become, uh, become oh, actors. Yeah, it's just one of those things, the family business, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the way that we see Lecter being portrayed, because obviously 
because of because of how big a name the character is, obviously the hot property was going to be, you know, how is Lecter portrayed in this film? And yeah, he does have that sense of entitlement. It's very different to Lecter's performance. Do you mean Hopkins? Uh, sorry, uh, Hopkins. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Very different to Hopkins' performance because I feel like Hopkins was more about the intimidation factor, the fact he stands very still. He, I think he barely ever blinks the way he talks. In this, it's more, almost more antagonistic. Here, here's how I would sum it up in layman's <laughs> terms, as Hannibal would say. Yeah. <laughs> right, so very two different performances. Yes. And there is some people, I am not one of them, I will admit, that prefer Brian Cox. I can almost see their argument. I don't agree with it, but I see it. Mm. To me, Hopkins is playing it from a very operatic. Yes. Hannibal doesn't feel necessarily real in a sense when Hopkins is playing him that's not a detrimental thing I'm not saying that I'm saying it's very heightened it's very cinematic it's very suspenseful it's very intimidating Mm -hmm. to me Brian Cox the way he plays it he's very much downplaying the character he's it's almost like an East End villain, as we'd say over in the UK. Yeah. It's very much mundane, realistic, stripped away of artifice. Mm-hmm. He's not intimidating in the same way the Hopkins lectors intimidating. Yeah. Like you say, Hopkins is more about being kind of, like you say, exaggerated and operatic. This theatrical way, yeah. that, I would, to sum it up. Yeah, Brian Cox, he's the kind of guy who, if you watched... Yeah, like I say, a movie about the Cray Twins, for example. Or just a documentary on, you know, prison life. East you, London gangs or something Yeah, you like would this. come across a Brian Cox lector. Yeah, the kind of guy you'd see demanding, on a, you know, bring this guy, you know, break his toes and put right. his fingernails. That kind of guy. He's more of an earthy human villain, whereas Hopkins was all about being more than that. He was this... The way he was introduced, like Starling walking with the hall, and he just gradually comes into view. Yeah, he was built up a lot more. To Very this, much stylized. To be this grander character, what, yeah. what, What's your take on that? I Look, as I said, I prefer the, the, I prefer the Hopkins lector, to uh, put it simply. Me too as well. Again, yeah. because I love Anthony Hopkins, and yes, the way he plays him is more grandiose, I guess you'd yes, say. Yes, that's but exactly. in all ways, it's more memorable. His Chianti and fava beans. <laughs> yeah, everybody remembers that, and everyone remembers his... In, to- well. in, in Thomas Thomas Harris's novel Science Alarms, do you know what? It's not Chianti. Oh, what was it? I don't know, Wayne. Is it because of how he, he changed it? Because the wine, the reference in Silence of the Lambs, the novel, is not necessarily mainstream. So they changed it to Chianti because it would be relatable to the reader. I'll be honest, I think when I see Silence of the Lambs, that was the first time I'd ever heard of Chianti. That was the first time. <laughs> Good thing they were. Well, this was a long, lonely, nice long, nice wine. Nice wine, Wayne. A long time, yeah. Is it? Oh, I'm not much. It was of a nice wine. for liver. I'm not. <laughs> 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 so I've been told, but yes. yeah, but with Lecter's performance, because this is the the best two performances, maybe I would say are the villains in this film. Might sound kind of strange, but with Lecter, the way he looks, he's almost got this smug look about him. His mouth's right. open a lot. He asks very intrusive questions, yes. but in a way, he's also kind of polite and nice. Like he gets a case, was like, "Can I keep these? I'll study them." It's almost like it's an in, it's the best way I can sum it up. It's a battle of intellectual one-upsmanship. I agree with you. Did you find, though, at times, Brian Cox's um, his tone, his, his voice was a little too lyrical? And I think that might be, have been the Scots in his voice. Mm. And it kind of undercut the tension. What you mean? There was like 
a lilt. There was a lilt to his voice. Oh, so there was inflections in his voice that towards made it, the end of a sentence that made it harder to say. Kind of, do you want to leave your home phone number? Yes, something like that. Did yeah. you find? Yeah, kind of like a weird way of like he bounces along his syllables. Still a good, still a really good uh, Hannibal. Yeah, I really. I'm not it. detracting from Brian Cox. No, we no, just no. have to make comparisons when we're being critical here. Yes, it's like it's it's very difficult not to watch a film like this and compare it to Sans the Lambs, or especially compare it to Red Dragon, since they are the same book. You said the other film, Wayne. Uh, the other villain, sorry. Yes. Other, Which that, will be? That would be uh, Tooth Fairy. Do you think that was almost kind of a soft name? Was it, it was like, like, if you were a serial killer and you were dubbed the Tooth Fairy, would that kind of annoy you? Why is he called the Tooth Fairy, Wayne? He leaves bloody uh, tooth imprint yeah. in all his crime scenes, doesn't he? Yes, this is the killer that we've had from the start, yes. He leaves, yeah, like he bites his victims, which is interesting, because obviously with FBI profiling, they'll do like imprints of your teeth. So if people are, look... We need to clarify because not everybody is privy. I'm sure most people are now. Everybody's watched CSI, Law and Order, you know, Signs of Alarms, etc. So a, an FBI profiler, what they they will do is they go to a crime scene once the crime has been committed. They're not necessarily detectives in the pure sense of the word, but they go into a crime scene, don't they? Yes. And they'll try and get themselves into the... the the mindset of the the yeah. criminal yeah. and try to you know make a psychological profile of who could have committed this crime and why. Yeah, this is exactly what we have Will Graham because obviously him being brought back into a case like this, it's because he has something special. What Will Graham is so good at doing is, like you say, getting into the psyche, diving into the mindset of the killer. He walks the crime scene. He's got a tape recorder with him. He's got the notes. He can look at something and he can deduce what was happening. He's, he often refers to, when he's talking through the crime scenes, he's speaking like he's talking to the killer. And he'll say, you did this, didn't you, my man? He calls him my man a lot. Do you know what, Wayne? Mm. There's a strength in this and a weakness, and I'll tell you why. This film above Red Dragon, which we're going to do some comparisons on later, yes. um, Will Peterson in this role, and I think a lot of it's down to the writing direction, for example. A lot of it's also down to Peterson's portrayal. Yeah. But this film does really well is showing the duality, the, the ju juxtaposition, because it's showing the effect. You can see it way on Will Graham, Will Peterson, can't you? Mm. In a way it doesn't in Red Dragon. Mm. You feel the mental toil it's took, the mental toll it's took on Will Graham. You feel that he's a almost a beaten man yes. who's brought back to life in a sense. Yes. And the detriment to that is you you know you were saying there's almost these externalized monologues. Yes. Very hokey. Oh yes. Oh what when he's talking to the killer? There's a scene and I think he's in the airport or a plane and he says, It's just you and me now, sport. And that's I thought that was that was a bad writing. That's right out of the Great Gatsby. There, there's certain <laughs> scenes like that when he's externalizing his thoughts about the Tooth Fairy, about Francis Dollarhide. Yes, that very undercuts the tension, and it's very dated and is very eighties. So for you, that would have been better if they either hadn't written the line, had if they'd written the line differently, or just not put a line in at just all. Just not put a line. Let his facial expression tell us the story. Yes. But the important thing with Will Graham, he's the tortured soul. He's at a job he's obviously very good at, but like you say, over the years it has weighed heavily upon him, especially with Lecter, because the idea is Will Graham is the one who captured Hannibal Lecter. It, it, yes. But it took a serious toll on him, and that's why he's somewhat reluctant to come back. And actually, that led, for me, to one of the most interesting kind of twists in the film, where they're talking about the Tooth Fairy, talking about Dollar Hyde. Yes. And Will says... I think I'll talk to Lecter tomorrow. Now, when you would usually see something like this in a crime film, somebody else would suggest it, like maybe 
Crawford would suggest right. it, Will would resist and he'd have to be talked into it. But I liked how in this, it was Will's idea. He decides to go back to like, to almost like a going back to face your past scenario. There's almost a co-sympatico between them. Lecter needs Will and Will needs Lecter. They are in a sense one in the same. Yeah. They're the flip side of one another. They're both intellectual. Will Graham will not admit to that. You know, mm-hmm. he's a cop. He's an FBI profile. He's not academic. So he thinks. So he says. But there is an, an analysis in Will Graham's own mentality that does tie him in with Hannibal Lecter. And I think there's a line somewhere in this film that alludes to where Lecter says, you and me, Will, we're very much alike. Yeah, in fact, I think I said that's how you caught me because we're very much alike. Exactly. And it's good you said duality because we talk about visual style, directing right. style. When Will is talking to Lecter the first time, obviously Lecter's in his cell, there's yep. the bars there. Michael Mann directed it in such a way that when we look at Lecter, we see a certain collection of bars. Right, yes. Then when we look at Will, the same collection of bars mirrored. Because right. two sides of the same coin thing. That's what I'm saying, Wayne. It's that duality. They are one and the same. One's gone one path, but one's gone the other. But they are co-sympatico in this, in this fucked up world. They, <laughs> they both exist on the same plane, don't they? They're both invested and engaged in, you know, the, the muddier side of life, aren't they? Yes. And Lecter says, you know, why did you come back here? And he says, you wanted to recover the mindset. Right. Because that's why how this film is so, what you call it almost cerebral in a sense, cerebral, psychological, because this is all about Will trying to solve a crime or prevent one by getting into the mind of the killer, which is something that has obviously, like you said, taken its toll over time. Well, a lot of people, when they're expressing their thoughts in this film, they use this word in cinema where it's called the mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene, yeah. Yeah, where the the external scene, what we're seeing, is supposed to replicate the internalised thought or mentality of the character. As we explained, you know, the blue for the family, etc. And that's what this film does in heaps and bounds. It's very expressionistic, mm-hmm. this film. It's very... What would you say, if if you were to encapsulate the look of this film, what is a word you'd go to? I think one word almost be, I would say, almost dichotomy, because we're talking about two sides. Because when I mentioned the lighting earlier, I'm not saying this film is dark all of the time. No. I'm saying it is more inclined to be dark in certain scenes when the mood calls for it. Well, it's operating on a different level, Wayne, because this obviously is taken from the same source as, you know, in 2002, Brett Ratner would make a film starring Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal. It was you know, a prequel to Science of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be amiss if we do, didn't do some comparisons. Yes. And I've actually wrote some notes. Do you think we should do like a little comparison to, you know, to, to bring up the audience into Manhunter versus Red Dragon? Yes, we'll put them side we'll put them side by side. We'll go through what the points are. Right, because I made some notes and if you're unfamiliar with what we're going to say. We'll we'll we're, we'll expound on it later when we're going through the film further. But I'm assuming that you know if you're listening to this podcast, you've most likely seen Manhunter and Red Dragon. Yes. So I, I'll go through the list of what I noted because we w- recently watched Red Dragon to compare to Manhunter, didn't we? Yes. So I'll go through some lists, and once I go through them, if you expand on them, you know, put your thoughts into right. So one of the first thoughts I had when watching and comparing this. Red Dragon, the film we're talking about. We're not talking about the novel now. We're talking about film versus film, right? Red Dragon, to me, didn't enough 
didn't have enough conflict between Will and Dollar Hyde. Mm-hmm. Right, that was my first one of my first points. The second point was the Tooth Fairy, which is Francis Dollar Hyde, was too present in Red Dragon and introduced too early. Third point, Peterson makes a more compelling Will Graham, though he externalized thoughts seem hokey, hmm. which I we've said already, okay. which I think is a directorial issue or a writing. I don't think they mix Externalized thoughts needed to be explicitly said. Like it's just you and me now, sport. The lines like that are very unnecessary. Terrible, ter- cheesy, terrible, cheesy man. <laughs> and for me, the ending of Manhunter undoes the suspense and doesn't fit the serial killer genre. It was too action-packed and less atmospheric. Another one, Red Dragon feels derivative of Silence Alarms, but it feels lesser. Also, hmm. for all its faults, Manhunter at least feels unique. And one of my last points I made, it says the information towards the case, when they're building this case up in the film, in Red Dragon it comes too early, rather than drip-fed throughout Manhunter like it is. Yes, because would you say, in a sense, Red Dragon is almost more of an action film? Well, Red Dragon is more literal, isn't it? It, It's more sticking closer to the novel. The ending of Red Dragon is what is in the novel. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of the scenes, it's it's sticking to the novel and it's to its detriment because a novel isn't a film, obviously. That's why we have artistic license to Yeah, we we expand on it because uh, film's a visual medium. Not not everything has to be told. And as we were saying, the tooth fairy, Francis Dollarhide, is played by Tom Noon in this film. And he's not brought into, I think it's an hour he's brought into this film. It's about 55 odd minutes. Yeah, Yeah, it's halfway through the film. Because when I watched Red Dragon, as soon as he came on screen, I, you know, Take my laptop to make sure. And yeah, he's introduced something like 15, maybe even 20 minutes earlier. And like you say, I think that is to the film's detriment. Because for Red me, Dragon's detriment. Yeah. For me, with Francis Dollhide, the Tooth Fairy, I don't know about you, but I felt a less is more thing. Because he's really not in Man- Manhunter that much for being the main antagonist. Well, you need to demystify him, which is what Manhunter does. Exactly. They, they, they bring him back to the bare bones. Yes. What is what... What is it that makes him frightening? It's the unknown, isn't it? Yes. If if you peel back the layers and you analyse him too much, you go into his childhood, for example, you go into this and that, you're exposing too many tricks. Yeah. And when you know the trick, you can't sympathise, which there is a very good scene in here where Will Graham, played by Peterson, actually says, look, I sympathise with him as a child, but as an adult, he needs put down yeah it's basically even just look at the introductions of the character how are we introduced to the tooth fairy in manhunter he kidnaps uh lounge who's uh right let's uh, get let's go into lounge freddie lounge let's expand who's lounge lounge he's a journalist from the tatler from the tatler magazine and his background is freddie lounge is he's a photographer for the uh the tatler magazine kind of a sleazy photographer sleazy photographer and he took these pictures of will graham in a case prior to this film when will graham was chasing hannibal yes and he kind of snuck in because will graham as we said very damaged man after he brought in hannibal he pretty much had a nervous breakdown didn't he, he did yeah and freddie lounge the photographer for the tatler magazine sleazy magazine mm-hmm. <laughs> he took photos in the hospital of will recovering yeah because he's portrayed as that kind of stip- uh, typical sleazy journalist no i'll get to go and take my photos oh you know it's my right to do this etc etc so yeah so he's already set up as kind of a bad character and it's already established that will doesn't like him so freddie lounge is played in this film manhunter 
Stephen Long. Stephen Long. I'm not familiar with Stephen Long. Are you? Uh, I I know him more more for his later career when he was in films like Avatar. I didn't. Is he, he in Avatar? Yeah, because see when the credits roll, it said Stephen Lang. When Lounge came on screen, I didn't even recognise him because I've not seen him much as a younger man. Oh, who was he in Avatar? Uh, he was the the like the army general. He was the guy with the crew cut haircut. And yeah, I think he was. Wow, yeah. that guy looks different. Yeah, he was the big. That's why I didn't recognise him. Well, somebody's been on the roids. <laughs> Or whatever it was in that yes. universe. Yeah, but with Stephen Lang, because we have Stephen Lang playing him here, and in Red Dragon we have Philip Seymour Hoffman. Which, Wayne? I said this to you mm-hmm. last night when yes. we watched Red Dragon. Philip Seymour Hoffman kicked the bucket on this film. Mm. He was terrible in Red Dragon. I did not like him as much as I liked Stephen Lang. I he loved constantly... Philip Seymour Hoffman to death, but... <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. But, uh, loves Philip Seymour Hoffman, but yeah, you used the term and said it was like he was sleepwalking. It was like he is playing lounge, like he had just got out of bed. Yeah, because the whole time, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. of course. Because with lounge, he's the kind of character you're supposed to dislike. Within ten seconds of Stephen Lang being on screen, I hated this guy. He's a terrible guy, exactly. Because he's, he's fucking awful. Because he's constantly in your face. He's asking intrusive questions, and then Will even gets physical with him. Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of comes on almost in a kind of nonchalant way, <laughs> and by the time you know he meets his end, I was like, oh. I guess the character's gone then. When it happened to Lang, it was shocking. What was the confrontation too over the top in Manhunter? What? Oh, with um... Will Graham throws him on top of a, <laughs> on top of a, a car, a, breaks the windscreen to a car. Red Dragon, he is just pressed against the car. Yeah, it's it's done in a very different way. But again, Manhunter did that so much better. That character, he was more hateable. Therefore, it was more shocking with what happened later. And even his confrontation with Dollarhide was done a lot better. Wayne, yes. Comparison time again. Yes. You can't, you can't help it when there's two films from no, the same source. No. Right. Will Graham, Will Peterson, Manhunter. Will Graham, Edward Norton, Red Dragon. Thoughts? Right. Will uh, Will Graham, play, uh, Will Peterson one. That's confusing, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, yeah, it's, yeah. More psychological, more cerebral, more... Damaged. Haunted, more damaged. Yes. yes. So I will take that performance. Because that's the idea of the characters. His, he's this tortured soul who's coming back to the profession that beat him down and you can see just the suffering in his eyes the obsession as well because he becomes obsessed at one point jacks calls him like when are you coming back he's like when i'm finished jack yeah so he was kind of reluctant to begin with but now it's like he's got to see this through to the end here's the important thing did you find in this film manhunter the the will graham part is very haunted as you said and he almost needs francis dollarhide he almost needs the tooth fairy in Red Dragon, Will Graham, it seems almost like an inconvenience. Yes. Somebody had stated that Edward Norton plays Will Graham in Red Dragon, like he's just bored the whole film. <laughs> it's like a cop being assigned to a case he's not very interested in. He do- it's like they don't need each other. In Manhunter, Will Graham definitely needs Francis Dollarhide, the Tooth Fairy, doesn't he? Yes. It- 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 it's almost his reason for existence. He doesn't admit to that. He doesn't say that. He may not know that. Mm-hmm. But he needs it to cleanse the palate of what he sees as mistakes or traumas from the past. Yeah, so for... Will Peterson, for Will Peterson, this case feels kind of like a redemption. Right. But with uh, Edward Norton, it's like, well, I guess Uh, I have to do this Yeah, it's like an inconvenience. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And talking about uh, the different portrayals, we've got Ralph Fiennes in Red Dragon and we have Tom Noonan in Manhunter. For me, this is not really a question. Tom Noonan was the better performance. Oh, actually, I'm sure I have a a quote somewhere, Wayne, from Tom Noonan. 
Did you know when they were making this, Tom Noonan, he actually asked that no one playing his victims or his pursuers would be allowed to see him. Mm. While those he did speak to should address him by his character's name, Francis. The first time Noonan met Peterson was when Peterson jumped through a large window <laughs> during the climactic scene of the film, I should say. Oh, there's during the I have fi- a problem with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he went he, pretty method for yeah, this. Yeah, he did. He really poured himself into it. Like I said, there was the physicality. There was all of the working out, which made him taller. Well, yes. <laughs> there was, again, he insisted on staying in different hotels, yep. traveling on different flights, basically being kept away from everybody, especially Peterson. That was the most important thing that he be kept isolated to... To the very last se- yeah. sequence. That's because yeah. of the mystique. I think Ralph Fiennes, we have a good performance. But that's I think, what I was saying. But we have too much of him. Obviously, very physical performance, but we have too much of him. He's introduced, like I was saying earlier, Dollarhide we meet in his confrontation with Lowndes. It's like, oh shit, here's the guy. Uh, with Ralph Fiennes, we're being introduced through like traumatic childhood. Something which was just right. kind of hinted at in Manhunter, but here we see it a lot more clearly. Right, it was in Manhunter it's said as a passing sentence. Yes. But it's it's a, a huge issue almost in Red Dragon, isn't it? So that's what we were saying before. In Man in Red Dragon he's demystified way too much. Yes. So what's the reason for the tooth fairy? what's he doing? Why is he doing these killings? Tell me. Well basically it's a fantasy world he's creating because he stalks he finds these families. The most important thing for him really is the attractive mothers in the family. Yes. And he lives out these fantasies kills the victims, and he has this thing with mirrors, because he uses... It's glass from mirrors he uses... He, he smashes his, the mirrors and places it in the eye sockets of his victims. because yeah, Will realises he wants... Even though they're dead, they're still alive and watching him, in a sense, because he can see them in their eyes. Well, the gist is he wants to be wanted and desired, and if he makes them want and desire him enough times, meaning the more victims he tallies up eventually he will, in his own mind, become wanted and desired because there's a speech by Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter where he says, you know, God kills all these people. You kill enough times, you become godlike because you are doing God's business, in a sense, isn't it? Basically, like, if you kill, you know, it's like that line, you you kill one person, you're a murderer, you kill so many people, you're a serial killer, you kill everyone, you're God. Which is interesting because that line, Red Dragon really jumps the gun on that Does line. Will Graham not say it? Will Graham Dragon. says that about 20 minutes, like 20 minutes in, he says about, oh, because he wants to be God. I'm like, wait, Hannibal hasn't even planted that seed yet. He's not even put that idea in your head. And then think- Hannibal still says it later on. I'm like, but he already knew this. Yeah. Do you know what that the problem with that is? Yeah. Fucking Brett Ratner. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Ratner directed like, Red Dragon. We can blame case. everything on Brett Ratner and we can not feel bad about it. Yeah, fuck Brett Ratner. <laughs> fuck Brett Ratner. <laughs> but with... Um, but with uh, going back to Red Dragon with the abuse story, it's so literal in Red Dragon to the point that it's like, uh, I think it was a grandmother that abused him, to yes. the point that he looks forlornly at her portrait several times. It's like very on the nose. Another uh, contrast here is Red Dragon, Ralph Fiennes, Francis Dollarhide, very tattooed body, the Red yeah. Dragon. Yeah. In this one, there's an implication later in the climatic scene, which we'll get to. But did you see the the press clippings for Red Dragon? Yeah. Tom Noonan actually wears the tattoos because that's what they were going to do. But Mm. I think Michael Mann kind of pulled back from that and said, look, it's too literal. It's too on the nose if we have him tattooed as the Red Dragon. Yeah, uh, Michael Mann felt it was too over the top to have the Red Dragons. I don't have a problem with the tattoos. It's 
it's quite a, a good like kind of market. I thought it was a very good uh, aesthetic. Market, market of intimidation. And that's not yeah. a sentence you'd think you'd hear from uh, Michael Mann <laughs> no, over the top. But then again, Ralph Fiennes <laughs> does appear naked in quite a lot of scenes. There's a lot of scenes where he's running about his house naked. Yeah, he likes to be in this yeah. guy. With Tom Noonan, like again, we barely ever see him. He's mostly covered up. And he has, they do move in a similar way because uh, Noonan and Fiennes have this kind of awkward shuffling that yes. they do. It's almost like they behave almost like children. Would you say, let's get into the psychology of the tooth fairy here. Mm. What, what, what what do you think drives them? It's uh, it's self-consciousness, isn't it? Yes. It's, it's a repression. It's They're physically in their eyes. Like we're saying in their eyes. They're physically disabled because they have a clefted palate, don't they? Yes. And in their eyes, they're not wanted. So as we said, you know, the mirrors, this this need to be wanted and desired is coming from this insecurity, isn't it? Basically, all this has been done out of insecurity. That's why they track these people down. And they do it with the moon cycle, don't they? It's uh, they they go out to the kill lunar cycle every yeah. time there's a full moon. I did think, was he a werewolf? <laughs> well. <laughs> but yeah, but he hides in, you know, he hides in the gardens, he stakes the place out, then he goes in, kills them enacts this fantasy of almost having a happy life, being wanted, like you say, being desired by these people. But there is a spanner thrown in the works for Francis Dollarhide. Reba. Mm. Reba, the blind worker at where Francis Dollarhide works. So it's like a St. Louis um, it's uh, a f- film studio, yeah. A photo processing place where, you know, we, we are probably too young for this, way. but <laughs> when people had analog film where they would shoot their films or yeah. home videos, they would take them to a, you know, this place where they got film developed. Going to get processed, yes. There is a bit here, really, like where he comes into the room with Reba, who's, like say, blind, played by Joan Allen, quite a while into the film before she appears. You talk about, like, the harsh blue lighting in Will's yes. bedroom. Here, it's like the total opposite. It. He sits down, Dollarhide sits down, and it's almost completely black, just with a few green lights. Like he's sitting in the darkness. I like right. that. Why? 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 What's it? What strikes you there? Well, because it's it's symbolic of the darkness, right? The darkness that's within within him. him. Like you don't even need to say he's bad. You can see him sitting, kind of awkwardly in the dark. But you know, she's she's taken with him. Yes, <laughs> at least somebody is. <laughs> now the implication in in these two things. These two films, Red Dragon and Manhunter, are very different. In Manhunter, there's not too much expressed that that Reba is going to divert Francis from his mission, Mm -hmm. which is to continue to kill. In Red Dragon with Ralph Fiennes, there is more of an implication that the introduction of Reba is going to make... Francis, you know, reassess his mm. values, reassess his actions, and he's going to fight against that a little bit more, isn't he? She's been pushed more like an angel that's come to save him, basically come to change his ways. Right, because now he is wanted and desired, essentially, mm-hmm. by an actual person. Hmm. But it's interesting with uh, with Tom Noonan's portrayal, because you can see, it's like he can't even tell if he really likes this woman. There's a kind of a very stiff awkwardness about it, like... They very rarely get close to each other. They kind of give each other these weird little looks. But it's, yeah, it's almost like he's much more uncomfortable with any kind of intimacy, you could almost say. So back to aesthetics, Wayne. Yeah. Right, Manhunter, Tooth Fairy. Okay, does this undercut it a little bit? Is this where Michael Mann's style becomes a bit intrusive? We see Francis Dollarhide, because obviously he takes Reba back to his place. 
very modern house. It is. Yes. It's a ve- the, the structure, the the, the design. He's wearing a patterned shirt. <laughs> That's a bit flamboyant for you know somebody who's self conscious. So the Miami Vice thing, I guess. Whereas in the the aesthetic of Red Dragon is very much taking its line from Silence Alarms, the Jonathan Demme film. It's very, would you say, Southern Gothic almost? Yeah, he lives in. I think it's supposed to be like a, a nursing home. It's this right. big Gothic looking building, huge staircases, massive bookcase. And in Manhunter, it's, as we said, look, it's, it's very modern. Yes. Does it fit? This is what I'm saying. Does it fit the character? Is Michael Mann getting in the way here? Is he being too much of a stylist? Mm. Does it fit the character? We think Does this, a Francis live in that house? We think a character like this should not... A character like this would almost be more old-fashioned. He would have a very more old-school house, you would say. Would he wear a pattern shirt? Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. <laughs> this is just what he could find. Yeah, maybe. Or unless he got it from a victim. Well, but then again, his victims are hardly his size, are they? Yeah. What, six foot five? <laughs> six foot five, yeah. And Apparently, ten. he was supposed to be six foot seven. No, oh, right. There are quite a lot of times where a man will film him. From being up That below. classic thing where you film him from the bottom to make them look bigger. Right, but there is the sex scene because he actually wins Reba over somehow. I have no idea. It was the tiger thing, I think. Was it the tiger? <laughs> you explain that way. People are going to say the tiger thing. What yes, the, the, ti- the tiger, the tiger thing? thing is uh, Dollarhide takes Reba to a vet where there, uh, a man is going to a vet is going to operate on a tiger's tooth, I believe it is, and that was a real vet and that was a real sedated tiger. And it was, yes. Yeah, and Reba gets a chance to like feel this tiger that's lying on the on very the very tactile. Yeah, yes. Because being be, being blind, that's one of the key is now one of the key senses is the feeling of uh, the touch. So is that Francis showing some humanity in a sense? Yeah, but even yeah. then, he kind of stands there looking, not sure whether to smile, not sure whether to be happy. Just kind of standing there. Quite frightening. It's just quite frightening, yes. An intimidating back. guy. Yeah. Yes. Not just because of his size, but because of how he's played almost as someone who doesn't understand how to be more human. More human than human. <laughs> yeah. To quote Rob Zombie. Quote Rob Zombie, yeah. But there's a, yeah, there's a, like I say, there's a lovemaking scene, or we'll just call it a sex scene. To the, to the song The Big Hush. Yeah, The Big Hush. I, I, I actually quite like that song. It's a good song, I'm yes. not long. Did you think it was weirdly out of place, like this random kind of pop song just coming in at this moment? No, Michael Mann always does no. that. Especially in a film like this, we're talking this kind of deep, dark psychological film, and then we got this kind of upbeat pop song. I, interesting you say that. What did you prefer the score of Red Dragon? Did you think it fitted the tone of the piece more? It than did. Danny right. Elfman did the score. Yeah, the score was it Elfman, was it? Danny Elfman. Yeah. yeah, the score was much more fitting. It was more consistent. I can right. say, like when it wanted to be intimidating, it was more intimidating. With this, atmospheric, atmospheric. Yes. Yeah. With this, you've got the score, and then just like a pop song now and then. But you've got the you've got the benefit of hindsight. You've got to remember, Manhunter came prior to Signs of the Lambs. Yes. So you you were you didn't establish this from the get go, did you? No, this was the first time uh, this book was being adapted. Exactly. But like I say, I think because Man, because of his style, he made it his own. He made it distinct. We'll say that it's a distinctive looking film, and that's why I'm going to actually say I prefer Manhunter to Red Dragon. I do prefer Manhunter to Red Dragon. Definitely. Red Dragon maybe has the benefit of, you know, Hopkins's Lecter. Yes. But even some people criticize that because not that the even fans of Hopkins and Silence Alarms, they think he was too much in Red Dragon. And they, he was demystified in Red Dragon. Well, if you think about Silence of the Lambs, he won, he's the, in Oscar prison for, pretty much he won the Oscar for it. And he's famously, I think, the least screen time to win lead actor. Because yes. he's not in it much, but he makes the most of it. Right. In Red Dragon, it's like he was given more 
screen time. They knew more they had a star reign. in the in Hopkins's Hannibal. Yeah, and you know they've placed him front and center almost in Red Dragon the film. Yeah. They've they? looked at Sounds of the Lambs and thought that's an incredibly iconic. Performance. We need more of it. We though. need more. Yes. that's the the word more. We need right. more of this. In Hannibal, it was more. In Red Dragon, it was more. Do you think it was almost kind of worn out by that point? Three films in, and we're still doing this. The sh- right. shtick. Because what did you ever see Hannibal? I did see Hannibal. I didn't like Hannibal. Hannibal wasn't great. I didn't enjoy Hannibal I've, at all. I've got a feeling Hannibal will be one of those films and soon where it's going to be reappraised. I bet you. Everything's reappraised, right? Something like 20 years old now. About that, yeah. It must yeah. be. Must but be. No, no, I, I didn't Ridley enjoy. Scott? Yeah, Ridley Scott, yeah. Julianne Moore instead of um, Jodie Foster. Yeah, that was a shame. Yeah. Would you have liked to see Jodie Foster back? Oh, I would like back? to see Jodie Foster back. That's yeah. one of the best performances in a thriller slash horror yeah. film. Such a good. Clarice Starling again, by we're, Jodie we're Foster. Talking about, uh, we're talking Will Peterson, uh, Brian Cox, that kind of two way back and forth. Yeah, with Starling and uh, Lecter, it was fantastic. What did you think of the opening of Hannibal? Too action packed, I thought, for a Hannibal film. Was that with. Uh, it was like a shootout with Carlos Moore. Yeah, I, I only remember it vaguely. It's been a long time since I've seen it. I just remember it kind of vaguely, but I don't think. Starting with like a big bombastic action scene. Do you feel Red Dragon was almost more bombastic? Bombastic to Manhunter? Like compared to Manhunter, yeah. Like it was it was trying to be bigger, trying to be flashier. Yeah, I think they had the budget though, didn't they? They would have done, yeah. And and Red Dragon made money. <laughs> did it profit? It did profit. Well yeah. I'd assume I so. think Manhunter was the only one that didn't profit. Oh poor bastards. <laughs> That's unfortunate, yes. Yeah, well. It's uh, look, I, I'm I'm a big defender of Manhunter. As we said, I actually prefer it to Red Dragon. Yes, so do I. Like, I say a lot of the comparison points you were going through when you say Manhunter is better here. I think I pretty much agree with all of those points. But you know, we, we're getting through this film, and it's it's very hard not to compare when there's so many films by Hannibal, is there? Yeah, from Hannibal. Well, if it's with th- Hannibal again, two, <laughs> two two adaptations of the same book, which came out what less than twenty years apart. Yeah, it's going to invite comparisons. So, should we get to the climax of this film? We've yes. set it up. Of course, we can't go through everything. And we don't want to spoil it for everybody, Luke. Because I imagine there's actually quite a lot of people who have not seen Manhunter, have they? I reckon more people have seen Red Dragon yeah, than Manhunter. Which and Silence of the Lambs, of course. Shame. Shame. It is a shame, yeah. Not Silence of the Lambs. No. Very good film. Yep. How um, many Oscars did Silence of the Lambs win? Do you know? The Big Five. It won the Big Five, didn't it? Won the it? Big Five, yes. The la- is that the last film to do that? The latest film to do that, yeah. One of only three films to do that, yes. Do you know the other two? I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't know. I don't uh, know. It happened one night and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh. <laughs> Michael Douglas was one of the producers of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was. That's he was. one thing he won an Oscar for, which is one of those, oh, Michael Douglas won for that. Very different to Basic Instinct. <laughs> it is very different. It is very different, yes. Almost <laughs> <laughs> two decades apart as well. But with the climax, I feel that you and I maybe have similar criticisms of this. Right. Does that come from my comparisons before? Yes. It's right. So I've I've stated my comparisons. Right. Do you want to set up the climactic scene of this film right. for the for the listener? The climax scene is basically through some very clever deduction. Uh, Will Graham has discovered where Francis Dollahide is because he got it into his head that the f- the whole movies that he's watching, the killer must have seen these two to obtain some important information. Right. So they find that, they find out where the killer works, and then they find out where he lives. Right. And he's gone to the killer's house where Reba is. Reba, and the blind woman. Yeah, yes. blind woman. And at this point, Francis has basically turned against Reba and he's going to kill her. He's got the... Um, He's got the shard of glass. Well, he turns against her because in his mind, he sees a co-worker, takes her home, and in his mind, 
It's a romantic gesture, isn't it? Yes. So he his jealousy, you know, it peaks, doesn't it? And he can't handle this. So he kidnaps, you know, GBH's bloody <laughs> Reba, doesn't he? Yeah. Brings her home. Yeah. This is basically kind of out of character for him because this is the first time we've seen him do like an impulse kill. Like, right. He's just seen this person, he's gone and shot him, he's not staked him out, he's not followed him. Yeah, this is very... I, I was thinking if there's going to be a murder that's going to put him away, it's going to be this one because it's completely different from what he's done before. And he takes him to, you know, his modern house, as we ex- <laughs> as we said. His bizarrely modern house, yes. It's very, you know, glass, very see-through. Yeah, and he's got her on the table. Did you notice there was a weird editing, almost like an editing mistake? Jump cuts. Yeah, it looks like some f- uh, footage is missing because he's holding her down and it cuts to him looking up out the window. No, that was intentional. It's the jump cut. It's um, oh. John Luc Godard would do it in Breathless. Oh, yes. It's omitting scenes or sequences you don't necessarily need to see. And it, it's almost speeding up the action. Yeah, that's why I thought, you know, at the, at the beginning, it doesn't show the killer killing the family because obviously by implication, we know what's going to happen. And he puts the tape on of, you know, as we mentioned before, in a... In a Gada La Vida? In a Gada De Vida. Well, you've got it. By Iron, Iron Butterfly. But, uh, Iron Butterfly, yeah. Great song. Yes, very That good song's song. about 15 minutes in real life. Yes. And Fits you, the scene. Yeah. Kind of weird. Do you want to know what the reason they included that was? You tell me, Wayne. Well, it's because uh, Michael Mann had heard of a story of a Texas serial killer called Dennis Wayne Wallace. Mm, thank you. And... He, I do wonder, Wayne. <laughs> I'm not from Texas. Uh, but he, <laughs> But this man, Dennis Wallace, he believed that the song, In a Gada De Vida, spiritually connected him to this woman who, of course, he barely knew. Right. And that's where man got the idea to put it on. Because when it came on, I'm like, that's odd. But obviously, he's playing it to distract her, to freak her out. Right. She can't see what's happening. Yeah. Now, was your problem with this climax, the fact that in... A very slow, uh, you know, very steadily paced cerebral movie. This was almost too much of an action climax. Turned very Michael Mann heat, didn't it? It did, yeah. It's a shootout. It, exactly, yes. <laughs> and it contains one of the weirdest <laughs> scenes where, again, Dollahide has Reba on the table. And what does Will do? He jumps through the window. I was sitting there, what the hell are you doing? There's supposed <laughs> to be a thematic element to that because it's glass-based. They're yes. one in the same. There's the duality, the the, the seeker versus the, the seeked. Yeah. And mm-hmm. one's look, uh, Francis Dollahide smashes the glass in the mirror, his reflection, mm-hmm. whilst Will Graham is also running through the glass and smashing it, smashing Francis's perspective. Oh, I thought you were going to say this was like symbolic of Will entering Francis's yeah. world. Well, it is in a sense, yeah. In a sense, yeah. But like I say, he breaks in. We get a pr- pr- pretty, pretty standard shootout. I'd say it's like in kind of in a dark room. Yes. Will's got a, a like a revolver, and Francis has a shotgun now. There's we. This scene is very weird, as you said. It's got the jump cuts. It's got moments of slow motion. Francis Dollarhide, the two fairy. He breaks through a postered wall. Does yeah, it? there's like yeah. I thought that it's was like a actual... Japanese screen almost. Yeah, but he just walks through it. Yeah, with a shotgun. <laughs> with a shotgun. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Look, I want to expand on this a bit because you said it undercuts it. Right? Why does in my mind does it undercut it? Uh, when I think of serial killers or serial killer fiction. Guns play very little into it. Mm. It, It's not personal enough. It's undercutting the atmosphere. It's undercutting the tension. You're saying it it lacks that kind of intimacy you would get if you were using, again, knife or a shard of glass. It just becomes an action sequence. Yeah. What do you think? Just like a generic shootout. Yes. Yeah. No, it's right. Like Him pulling the shotgun out is kind of disappointing. You think he'd almost want to... Like, if he tried to use the glass against him and it was a more... He did use the glass against him because when Will comes in, he does slash Will in the face, throws him down. Mm. 
but it would have been better if you'd kept doing that because it would have kept them it would have kept them closer right and because we're talking about duality them looking into each other's eyes it would have played into that aspect right yeah it's but no we get a shootout <laughs> not great is it Wayne no food gets destroyed and it doesn't last very long either because remember checking time was like there's only about 10 minutes of this film left so <laughs> Will Graham, he's thrown on the floor. Francis Dollarhide, shotgun. He's shooting the incoming SWAT team. Well, Will comes to, shoots Francis dead. Okay, you know how we said before, we said before, Wayne, that Francis Dollarhide, for this film, Michael Mann omitted the Red Dragon tattoos. Yes. Film by, uh, song by Fountains of Wayne. <laughs> Red Dragon tattoo. But I wonder if that's where it came from. I wonder if it did. No idea. Yeah, maybe he did. <laughs> there you go. We're learning. We learn so much on these podcasts. But anyway, he he doesn't have the tattoos in this film, as we stated. No. But when Will shoots him, he he spreads out on the ground, Francis, yeah. and he bleeds in the pattern almost of the wings of a dragon. Yeah, I remember him lying down. I looked at the way he was posed. I thought it was almost like a Jesus pose to begin with, with the arms out. But then I seen yeah, the blood on the floor, and I thought, obviously, yeah, a reference to. The Red Dragon. William Blake's Red Dragon. Yeah, the, yes. the thing you showed earlier. Because that's another thing. We talk about becoming this kind of transformation. It's like he sees the Red Dragon as this thing kind of to aspire to, almost. Because does Francis ever refer to himself as the Red Dragon? Not in this one, I don't I think. He does, because he does in... in he, he does in Red Dragon. He literally says, I am the dragon. Yes. So he actually... I don't think he does in this one. No, I don't think he does either. Yeah, I think he's annoyed about the Tooth Fairy thing, but like he never literally says he's the Red Dragon. But like I say... It's almost something he aspires to be. And now in death, kind of is. Well, he's Sam at Wayne. <laughs> well, he's, but, dead. Yeah, he's dead anyway. He's dead. <laughs> dead on the floor. And so we can have your kind of kind of standard happy wrap-up. But, but let's compare, right, Wayne? Yeah. That is the climatic scene in this film, in this film, mm-hmm. between Francis and Will, right? Red Dragon doesn't go that way. No. Red Dragon, he's going to burn Reba in the house with him. But, but... He shoots himself in Red Dragon, Francis. Yes. It's not him, though. No. It's a fake out. Because he goes back to Florida, where he got his address from Hannibal Lecter, like he does does in Manhunter. Yes. Through a a code. Through a code. And we're getting two endings in Red Dragon, the film. (laughs) Which is actually in the novel, isn't it? Yeah. Because like we say, the Red Dragon is the more literal uh, adaptation of the novel. Well, it's called Red Dragon. <laughs> so it should be, yeah. Because yeah. the ending in Red Dragon was like two endings. The first one's almost like a fake out. Yes. Cause there's Where like, you're supposed to believe he burned in this fire, he's yeah. killed himself. Because him shooting himself, but you never actually see it on and screen. And Reba's fine in both films, people. Yes, he's okay. Because I looked at the time, I'm like, there's still quite a bit of time left. And then Will returns home and... Yeah, the Red Dragon is back. So yes, like you say, he didn't actually, didn't burn down. Because we've seen the house kind of exploding, didn't it? Now get to the, get to the end of the Red Dragon. <laughs> get to the end of the Red Dragon. So Francis Dollarhide's Red Dragon actually comes to Will's home. Yes. And then... In Florida. In Florida. And then we get another shootout. Yes. How yeah. does that occur? <laughs> that just keeps that just keeps happening because uh, he comes into the house. Well, and- well, Will and his wife are sitting, you know, relaxing at the beach. They think all this drama is over with mm-hmm. there's a noise in the house isn't there somebody goes to check it's you know tooth fairies there yes there's a shoe though he takes his son hostage but you know his wife comes in mm-hmm. she shoots him mm-hmm. she actually shoots him dead she's mm-hmm. the one who kills him yeah yeah it's in it's 
again, if that's what happened in the novel, I think that's almost kind of a more more interesting ending because the one in Manhunter, like you said, it's one of the things that I think Man, uh, Red Dragon does do better than Manhunter. The ending. Yeah, much better. I think I prefer the ending as well. I also like how, Cinematically, it, it's more fulfilling. Yeah, because like you say, uh, Dollarhide has Will's son with a shot of glass, but then Will taunts Dollarhide right. by evoking the kind of spirit of the I guess it was his grandmother yes. that abused him when he was younger and I thought that's clever yeah because that's going to that's going to draw the rage towards you here's one Wayne mm-hmm. in the novel in yeah. Manhunter and the film Red Dragon the son three different names yeah it's a different name every why? time why it's Kevin in Manhunter is it Joseph and uh, Josh I think Josh in Red Dragon yeah it's like a different name every time <laughs> why why I don't know What's the significance it's not because they're, they're barely in the film yes no it's, it's I, I don't I don't know why <laughs> help us out here people what's what's going on why do they keep giving different names but that's the climax that's the climax of both movies so things dead and yeah will can go back to his life now was the first time viewing for you this manhunter it was yes impressed were you impressed? Really, really liked it that's, a, that's good yeah i don't i didn't get too annoyed of this this style over substance argument or no. anything i liked the aesthetic of the film music was weird music was weird yes a lot of police procedural stuff again i think that's why it's represented so accurately because a lot of this film is talking about evidence discussing evidence speculating over things like this. you know how we were mentioned dennis farina who plays jack crawford in manhunter he actually his first um avenue into cinema into the film business was actually through michael mann Oh, was it? He was a consultant on Thief for, you know, accuracy because he was a policeman. And, of course, through time, he ended up in Manhunter as Mm. Jack Crawford. And he's a great Jack Crawford. I I really like um, Dennis Frieda. I think he's... Because he has more of a role than, like... um, Harvey Harvey Keitel's Jack Crawford. Yeah, Harvey Keitel's Jack Crawford. Also, the Jack Crawford in Sans the Lambs. He wasn't in it as much, but... Yeah, and Frieda's performance was great, how he kind of counterpointed Will, how he was, like, largely supportive. There was still conflict between them. But, like you say, in Manhunter, yeah, a lot more conflict between Will and Dollarhide. Not enough in Red Dragon. No, uh, I. That's what I was saying. I don't feel in Red Dragon, Will Graham, and the Tooth Fairy needed each other. No. Whereas in Manhunter, I, it, you felt they needed each other. It was like a sick connection between them. Yes, and because Man- and I think that plays to Manhunter's advantage. It does because Manhunter is so much more psychological. Yeah, that's why I enjoyed it so, uh, so much more. It didn't feel like it had to be big and bombastic, big action sequences. There's just so much that can come from Will watching a video or Will right. speculating over what the killer's going to do next, walking through a crime scene. It's just so much more visceral, so much more cerebral. And I think that's why this is why, uh, that's why I prefer Manhunter to Red Dragon. Do you know what, Wayne? Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, we're like Red Dragon. Are we? We've had two fake beginnings now. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is our actual beginning. People thought it was body double. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, what's going on? We're so meta. Interestingly, actually, I want to throw this in because I like this little anecdote. Uh, at the rap party for Manhunter, a guy turned up. He was a friend of Will Peterson's. They'd acted in a theatre together. And he met Michael Mann and became friends with him. That was Ted Levine. Oh. Ted Levine, who would go on to play across in Sounds of the Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill. So, yeah, he turned up at the rap party for Manhunter. So there's a lot of six degrees of separation in this film. There is a lot, yeah. Here, alternative casting theory here, Wayne. Yeah. David Lynch directing this. Mm-hmm. How does that go? Well, that would be that'd be trippy as hell, that wouldn't it? It'd that'd be, be a lot, of di- a very different film. It would be. You'd probably have scenes of Will hallucinating. I would love to have saw that film. I think it would have been really 
pretty cool, yeah. Those have been tremendous. Yeah, but if we're going to compare it to, let's compare it to Silence of the Lambs. Right. George Nash from Flickering Myth, he said, if you're going to compare the two films, one is a police procedural, the other is a horror-tinged thriller. When Demi opts for shadows, dingy cells, and gothic-inspired dungeons, man shoots with oppressive lighting in plush, pristine suburban housing and piercing white prison cells. Yes. So yes, that's, that's what the, I was saying. The southern gothic versus the, you know, the Michael Mann style. Yes, that's the uh, very, very different aesthetic styles. I do like the fact that the films aren't that similar. I do like how Manhunter really tried to be its own thing. I guess it was the first stab at this adaptation. Well, that's what I mean. It, it wasn't necessarily trying to be its own thing. It was just Michael Mann making an <laughs> uh, uh, interpretation of Red Dragon. Mm. And it succeeds, Wayne. Mm-hmm. Above all, look, that's when we get into the gist of when we discuss these films, a film will either succeed or it doesn't. Mm. And that's not down to box office. It's not down to profit. Mm-hmm. It's down to artistic merit. And this film, Wayne, has it in bucket loads. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like, from you, a uh, pretty strong recommend. Very strong, Wayne. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a recommend from yourself from Infilm We Trust for Manhunter. Two very strong recommendations. You've been listening to episode 29 of In Film We Trust. Once again, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next week where we'll discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. 